my name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration, and it's good, and I'm thankful that you've joined us, whether here in service or maybe you're worshiping with us online. We're glad that you can be with us. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about that. We do have Bibles for you underneath the chair in front of you. So grab one of those, and you could turn to page 259. 259. Uh, last week, after Easter, we began our series continuing back in the book of Samuel, specifically 2 Samuel. And uh, we see that David has come to the throne. But what's really fascinating as we are about to read chapter 7 is that Israel, the nation, the people of God are actually experiencing stability for the first time. How does that sound? I mean, stability, like that just sounds so nice to be at peace. Um, last week we saw all these wars and all these issues and turmoil come up, deaths. But here we're about to enter into a time of peace for the nation of Israel. David is king over all the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning the nations are all united. But also, the Ark of the Covenant that was placed back in like early 1 Samuel when it came back from Philistia had always been there. And now David brings back the Ark of the Covenant, which is the real or the symbolic presence of God's God and his power manifested back in Jerusalem, which is now not only the capital of Israel, but also the epicenter of worship for the people of God in Jerusalem. So a lot of good things are happening in Israel. They have a king, there's no war, worship in the capital is now situated in Jerusalem. And guess what happens when you have a lot of time on your hands and things are stable? You come up with great ideas. And David has a great idea. And so we're going to read about that here in verse starting in verse 1. So follow along with me starting in chapter 7 verse 1. Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with the... I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my, for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down in your fathers with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks that you are a God who always initiates with us, even as we've experienced here this morning, that you are the one who calls us, you're the one who cleanses us and makes us whole, you're the one who instructs us with your word now. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us that you would transform us and make us more like you. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good ideas gone bad. We'll see that here in David's story and what we just read. But we all have good ideas that have turned bad, right? Like a few weeks ago, I decided to play basketball after five years of never touching a basketball. And I almost threw out my back and I was in major pain. We all have good ideas that just turn out really wrong. Well, there's a man that I heard about, an officer. His name is Paul Bacon. Officer Bacon, I kid you not, that's his real name. And I heard this from Ira Glass, who, who uh, narrates and tells stories on his podcast, This American Life. And this, this Officer Bacon had, f- had finished his long shift during the day in New York City and was then called to do a second shift starting at midnight through the entire night. And so you can imagine he's in a different part of the city with another partner that he doesn't really know that well. And he's called after a long day's work to patrol this little security booth to keep, you know, make sure that there's no terrorists in New York City. By 3 a.m., he's just exhausted. And so what does he do? He tells this guy, hey, I'm going to go take a nap. So he takes, he gets into his patrol car drives about 60 feet only, finds an isolated parking lot, and decides to park there, turn off the ignition, and fall asleep and take a little nap. He realizes he can't fall asleep sitting up, and so he gets out of his car and into the back seat and then falls asleep immediately. But before the alarm goes off, he immediately wakes up like frantically and realizes, oh my gosh, I can't get out of this back seat. Why? Because that's for prisoners. Prisoners are supposed to be in the back where they cannot get out of the car. And so it's February, it's cold, the car has completely fogged up. He tries to open both doors, locked. He gets on his back and starts pounding with his feet, with both feet as hard as he could, and the door is not opening. He is frantic at this point. And he realizes, like, I just need someone to come by. I'm right here, I'm next to a sidewalk, next to a street. If someone sees me, I'll scream. Lo and behold, a Pepsi truck pulls up right next to his patrol car, and there he is, Officer Bacon in the back seat, banging on the window, screaming and telling this uh, this truck driver, get me out. But imagine the truck driver going, there's a guy in the back seat of a cop car, I'm leaving, and this truck flees immediately when he sees the officer. He doesn't know what to do. And so he realizes, well, the windows are all fogged up. I'll write help. And he writes help backwards and also writes, I'm a cop. 
But none of that helps because no one's going to trust a dude in the backseat of a police car. Now, 25 minutes has passed by and he realizes, oh my gosh, because he's panicked so much, he, he forgot that he had his cell phone. So he takes out his cell phone and he realizes, though, he can't call the security booth because he doesn't know the number to it. And this guy that he's working with, he doesn't know him either. And so the only thing he's left to do is call 911. So he calls 911 and says, hey, can you please dispatch the officers to come and get me? I don't know exactly where I am, but come and find me. And before he hangs up, he says, wait, office, uh, operator, please make sure that you tell when you dispatch this that this is a non-emergency. Because otherwise, if this was a cop that needed help, they would have sent the cavalry out to find him. And so the operator says, sure, click. And then within a minute, there are sirens blazing and there's so many cop cars looking for Officer Bacon. He's so distressed, he calls 911 again and says, what did you do? And he finds out that what went out was a 1013, which means officer down. <laughs> which means he was either shot or he was beaten. And that's why there was a cavalry out looking for this guy in the backseat of a cop car. Because of the 1013, that officer in that security booth realizes, oh my gosh, it's probably this guy. He walks 60 feet, finds the car, opens the car door, and gets him out. They call off the cavalry, and he shared how his entire precinct never found out about this incident. Good ideas like taking a nap gone awfully terrible. We're... We've all have stories of how we've had good ideas gone bad. None of us are immune to these. And neither is it for David, the king of Israel. A good idea gone bad. And rather than focusing so much on the bad idea or the good idea, what I want us to look at is God's response to David. And the good news is how he deals with us is merciful is merciful it's gracious and we want to be able to see God's response to David's foolish idea the first thing we're going to see here is that David's bad idea reveals God's presence for David and for us God's presence you see David in the midst of stability and repose guess what he says look at my house my house is made of cedar right it's beautiful but look at the Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes God's presence and his power. It's in a tent. Why am I in a house of cedar, but God himself is in a tent? And so his great idea is to say, I want to build God a house. I want to build God a temple. He deserves it. And the ancient Near East was just like similar. All the gods had their own temples. And so he says, this is what I need to do. And that's what he does. He says, he says, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And he tells Nathan the priest. Now he comes out of nowhere, but he actually becomes a very instrumental figure, a priest for the nation of Israel. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. But here he pops out of nowhere. And this, this is not his finest moment because he agrees with David. He says, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But here's the thing. 
The only opinion that matters is God himself. And God does not agree. And he lets Nathan know that when God comes to Nathan in the middle of the night. And what does God say to David? He begins with a question. He says, would you build me a house to dwell in? Meaning, like, are you serious? You are going to build me a house? And if you're a parent, you've probably done this in the past where your kids ask you something preposterous and you ask it in a form of a question. Like, you guys know where I stand with dogs. And my kids are now asking for a second dog. And I'm like, are you serious? You're asking me for another dog when you guys don't even help take the dog out for potty breaks? Like, you, you're going to ask for another dog. And that's what God's doing. He's saying, are you serious, David? You're going to build me a house? He's in disbelief. Have I ever asked you to build me a house? I've never asked you to build me a house. And in fact, I've never asked anyone to build me a house in my history as I dealt with you, Israel. And that's what he says. Look at verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, what God is saying is, I've never asked for a house because my heart and my longing and my desire is to dwell with you. Wherever you go, I go. Wherever you are, I am there. He is a God who dwells with his people and does not need a house because he dwells and moves along with us wherever we are. Whether it's 40 years in the wilderness, in the dust, and in the thick of it all, or in the midst of celebration and joy in coming to the promised land, or in the midst of the mundane, ordinary moments of life, God wants to dwell with his people. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God is with you in the midst of struggle, in the midst of joy, in the midst of the mundane, that he longs to dwell with us? He does not ask for a house but longs to be with us wherever you are at. Cindy Fisher, a long member of ours, I had the privilege of officiating her mom's funeral last Saturday. And in her beautiful eulogy, she shared about as her mom was experiencing dementia, her mom, Emily, forgot Jesus, but Jesus never left her side. And that's true not only for Emily, but for us. God longs to dwell with us wherever you are at. How do we practice the habit of making that a reality of God's presence in our lives, whether it's in your own home, through reading God's word, through time and prayer, or as we gather together to be reminded that God is with us and he is our worship leader who instructs us and leads us in song and sings over us. He is with us Every moment of every waking day, he does not slumber. Even though we slumber, he stays awake and he is near to us. This is a God who dwells with us. His presence is a reality no matter what you go through, no matter where you are or where you've been. But God doesn't just stop there. 
in David's foolish idea, we also see God's favor. God shows us his favor. See, see, the problem, the first problem with David's idea was that God didn't need a house. He wanted to be with his people and be present with them and with us. But here's the other problem about David's idea. He really thought he was doing God this amazing favor, right? He's like, how awesome would it be if I were to do something really nice for God? To truly show the world and the nation surrounding us that this is the one true God who created everything. And he deserves a house that is great, that reflects who he is in his holiness and in his character. And while that is true, this is not the way favors work in God's economy and in God's world. We never do God a favor. Rather, God always shows his favor to us. It's always one way. It's never both ways. It is always God initiating, God showing unmerited favor. It's always God showing us his grace. It's never the other way around. And David thinks he's going to do God some favor. And what does God say in verse 8? I took you from the pasture, right? This is, he's recalling David's story. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Get the point? God is saying favor works in only one direction. It's always I. It's always me, me, me. I'm the one who took you out of the pastures. I'm the one who delivers you out of your enemies. I'm the one who shows you favor and favor unending always. Right? And we get to experience that a little bit here every single Sunday when we embody, as we gather together as, as people of God, we experience that favor that comes only from God. God's the one who calls us to worship, right? No matter how crummy your week was or how good it was, God's the one who invites us. God's the one who cleanses us and wants to make us whole. God is the one who instructs us and consecrates us with his word. God's the one who comes to the table and, fellow, and invites us to dine with him. God's the one who commissions us out into the world to be a blessing. You see that? God is the one who always shows us favor, unending mercy and grace. It's always God. We don't do anything for God. And I know some of us here this morning are going, I know that, Dan. Like, okay, okay, okay. But we need to hear this every single moment of our lives because we do not operate that way. We don't. We think we need to earn God's favor. And we need to do something for God so that we might keep his grace in our lives. But it's a lie. It's a lie. We fall into this vicious cycle of obligation and pretense and manipulation and anxiety that we were never made for. God never asked of us for that. And so what happens? We get tired and we get scared and we get judgmental and angry. And out of that, it makes it so hard for us to actually love God and love neighbor as we were called to with freedom and joy. 
And it's just true. Even yesterday, I wish everyone was here for the parenting workshop on depression and anxiety and, and whatnot. But I sat there on the verge of tears the entire time because I don't believe this, that God's favor is one way, that I don't earn anything and I don't have to give God any favor because it's, it's shown in how I love neighbor, i.e. my children and my spouse. Try harder. Stop making mistakes. You're not going to get this until you do this right. But it's reflected in my own story. Thinking that I need to earn God's favor to be loved and to be accepted. And I do that to my children and to my staff and to a watching world. But God's favor flows in one direction. God is the one who came looking for us to bring us home. God is the one who works in us and through us to make us more like Jesus. God is the one who grows us into being able to love God and neighbor. We never earn it. Rather, we always, always receive it. We receive his favor and it's only through faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. See, David learns that here. We don't do anything for God. But it's God's favor towards us. There's one more thing we see here in God's beautiful response to David. And it's not only just God's presence, God's favor, but also God's son. God's son in Jesus there's this remarkable turn of events, and you probably you might have heard it, you might have, you might have caught it or not. The last thing God says to David isn't that, okay, I want you to build me a house, but rather, David, you're not building me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house, and this house is going to last forever. I mean, talk about a turn of events for David. Read verse 11 with me. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This house that David is, that God is talking about is a dynasty, a greater dynasty than the bulls. A greater dynasty, and I'll let you have it, than the cardinals, right? This dynasty is one that will last forever, and I'm going to build that for you, David. And it doesn't matter. This promise does not matter whether there's death, right? He says, you're going to die, but your offspring will continue. It doesn't matter about sin. I will forgive them. Why? Because of my steadfast love, and it won't even, time will have no end. Because his promise to David that this dynasty, this home will be established forever is going to be sure. There'll be good kings and bad kings, evil kings, just kings. But despite of 
whatever human condition or circumstances comes at God, he will keep this promise. And no matter how good a king is or how bad a king is, they were all just placeholders for who? The great and eternal king, King Jesus. That through David's line, Jesus will come and he will reign forever. That is the house and dynasty I'm going to establish for you, David. You think you're going to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house that will last forever. And my son, Jesus, will come to the forefront. And he will be the fulfillment of everything that you need. Your presence, my presence, it will be through my son. The word becoming flesh to dwell among us. That word dwell that John, the gospel writer, talks about is tabernacle, tented. Exactly what God was talking about here. My presence will, with you will be forever. And you want to talk about my favor? It is by grace you have been saved. Through what? Through his sacrifice and death on the cross, his perfect obedience in life, his death that we deserve, and his victorious conquering over death so that we might experience joy, life, contentment forever. That is God's favor for us through his son who would die and suffer for you and for me. And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, David sees this. He hears God's response of his amazing presence, of his amazing favor, and of this one that would come, the Messiah, that would reign forever, a house, a dynasty that would have no end. And what does David do? think David gets mad, sulks in shame for thinking of such a horrible idea. No, he sees the immense compassion and love and overwhelming beauty of God's response. And what does he do in verse 18? Look at his response. We didn't read it, but what does David say? He says, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. I missed it. It's not there. Right in the beginning. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? He sits. He sits. It's almost like he was so overwhelmed that he has to take a seat. And in his sitting, he lifts up this prayer to God and says, Who am I? You are, there's none like you. Even like the song that we sang this morning, there's none like you. You are too holy, you are too great, you are too marvelous. And that's David's prayer to his God. Do you, do you see God's presence in your life? Do you see his unmerited favor and grace in your life? Do you see his son who becomes the fulfillment of all of these promises? Well, when we understand to the degree of what Jesus has done for us, we would sit and we would confess of this amazing God that we love and we serve. There is none like you. There is no one besides you. May that be our prayer this morning. Even as we come to the table, we get to just sit and God wants to feed us. 
so that we might be able to receive his mercy and his favor and be reminded of his presence in our lives. May that be the reality for us this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your favor unending and for your presence that is always near. I pray that you would be able to remind us in our lowest times, but also even in the midst of joys, that nothing is possible without your grace and love for us. So even as we come to the table now, strengthen us, nourish us, so that as we go back into our communities, that we might know that you always dwell with us and your favor is for us, that we don't have to do anything to earn your love and your grace. Do that good work as we eat and fellowship together at the table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.